the possibility of our practice here is freedom. The Buddha used the term Nibbana, which literally I understand means cooling. And he used this image of cooling a fire and talked about the patterns of greed, aversion, and delusion being like a fire burning in our hearts and minds. And this image of cooling cooling the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is one of the simplest and for me, one of the more inspiring definitions of freedom in the suttas. The extinguishing of greed, aversion, and delusion. And that's a the letting go of something and also the Buddha said that that space that the experience in this very life of that extinguishing of greed, aversion and delusion was a state of peace and said it was free from mental pain and grief. Now that doesn't mean that the heart is not open and connecting. This is an important recognition and understanding that the the dropping away of greed, aversion, and delusion doesn't leave us indifferent beings. In fact, it leaves room for a different kind of connection. The connection of the heart that is not contracted feels more deeply, resonates in this world with compassion when there's suffering. Empathizes and experiences a resonant joy when there's joy in the world and has this deep sense of connection. And so this freeing from greed, aversion, and delusion, we may not quite understand it at first and yet over time we may get little tastes of what this means and begin to trust that this direction is a is the direction of freedom. And so our work here, as we've been describing, to get to know our minds, get to know the entirety of our human experience. It's the getting to know part that creates the conditions for wisdom, understanding, to transform greed and aversion and delusion, to release greed, aversion and delusion. And we find ourselves, from time to time, we may find ourselves in this space of non-constriction. And yet the way to that is by getting to know the constriction really well. And we've been talking about that. And so we get to know greed and aversion really well of these three, greed, aversion, delusion, these 
And the Buddha called these the three root poisons of the mind. Three root fires, we could call them with our analogy this evening. And greed and aversion, we have some experience with and, and have, have some degree of ability to recognize them. Many different flavors of both of these. And yet delusion is often, oh, by its very nature, it is much harder to see. It is much harder to get to know delusion. It obscures itself. Greed and aversion are kind of more in the business of co-opting our minds to go along with them. So with greed, you know, this notion of getting what I want That's going to make me happy, getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want. Those energies are more uh, clear to our minds because they're essentially trying to make us see things or do things or behave in certain ways. And yet the nature of delusion is to obscure. And so much, much harder to see. And yet in the third foundation, Jill read this the other day, it points to the simple instructions. And I really love the simplicity of, of the third foundation. The first half of that is basically just asking us to look at or recognize a mind affected by greed and knowing, understanding, a mind affected by greed is a mind affected by greed. A mind unaffected by greed is a mind unaffected by greed. A mind affected by aversion is a mind affected by aversion. And knowing that, again, it's really just pointing to recognizing the experience of greed, the experience of aversion as an arising, as something, a phenomenon that's happening in the moment. And the absence A mind unaffected by aversion is a mind unaffected by aversion. One knows a mind unaffected by aversion is a mind unaffected by aversion. So noticing the presence and absence. And then likewise, one understands a mind affected by delusion as a mind affected by delusion. And so right there, it points to, okay, maybe it's possible to recognize delusion to see it at work in our minds. And then recognizing a mind unaffected by delusion as a mind unaffected by delusion. Delusion is the most fundamental of these three fires. because it basically underlies greed and aversion. Greed and aversion don't exist without delusion, and yet it is possible to be deluded without greed and aversion being present. Greed and aversion can create delusion also. One of the forms of delusion is kind of as a seeing things through a particular perspective. Not that we're not aware but that we are aware with a particular perspective and are unaware that the mind is holding that perspective. And so, you know, we might be uh, in a state of aversion and 
our mind becomes affected by aversion. And then we see things through that lens. At one point, um, I noticed at one point, my, one of my teachers asked me to just scan through the body and notice what was obvious. Just what's the most obvious thing? And then what's the next most and the next most? And I, I just kind of let the mind just land in my, in my mind randomly on these experiences. And when he, uh, my teacher, asked me to describe what I'd noticed, I'd, I'd said, because he'd asked me to just let it be choiceless, not that I was choosing, but just what's obvious, what's the first thing that's obvious? And when I reported to him, I said, well, I wasn't choosing, but it's clearly that it's clear to me that this wasn't choiceless because every single experience that the mind landed on was unpleasant. And so it was clear. I mean, I knew that my body was not nothing but unpleasant experience. And yet the mind was choosing unpleasant, highlighting unpleasant. And this is the way my mind works. This is the habit of mind based on years of practicing aversion. (laughs) You may have your own flavor of this. And so this is a kind of a filter, an unseen filter that biases the mind towards seeing things in a certain way, taking in certain things and not other things. So greed and aversion in particular have this uh, kind of, uh, greed and aversion create this kind of filter for us. And this is a form of delusion that arises out of greed and aversion. But greed and aversion themselves are based on a more fundamental kind of delusion. That basically of believing that in the case of greed, if I get this thing, I'll be happy. That, and happy not just for a moment, but something in our minds believes that we'll be happy for a good stretch of time. And so this kind of is the fundamental, is a fundamental perspective, view underlying that movement towards wanting to have something, wanting to get rid of something. This evening what I'd really like to explore is offering you some information about how you might begin to recognize a mind affected by delusion as a mind affected by delusion, and a mind unaffected by delusion as a mind unaffected by delusion. information to describe different ways that delusion works. And this information, it's not so much something to try to do something with, but as, as we've been saying somewhat, you know, sometimes just, and Saito Utejaniya really pointed to this. He said, so much of what I offer is, is information that it's like, it's like, I'll call it Dharma rain. It's just, it's just landing on the landscape of your system and filtering in to your minds, to your hearts. And that itself is a condition. Hearing the information is a condition that may allow you to see something different, see something new. And we may not even be conscious we're taking in this information. At one point, I was sitting a three-month retreat here and I had some insight about something. I don't even remember at this point what it was, but what I do remember is that there was this sense of, wow, that's really important. They should be telling us about this. 
and I was thinking of writing notes, you know, really you need to talk about this in your talks, it's so important. I didn't write those notes, thank goodness. In the next three Dharma talks, I heard it. It was there. It had been there. Well, this is a form of delusion in a way, right? It's a, it's a, in a way, it's, it's, it's sometimes happens that we, um, because we have a certain perspective on experience, we take in information and don't take in other information that kind of doesn't match our views or we don't consciously take it in. And yet, my, my sense is that it was going in like that Dharma rain. It was going in. And that's what supported the seeing of it. It wasn't conscious that I saw it or heard it. It wasn't conscious, but... And then it was, it was stunning to me that I hadn't heard it. You know, that I, I realized, wow, this is something they must say all the time. <laughs> Three Dharma talks in a row, it's been said, and I didn't hear it before. So this is part of the way our minds function. We take in information kind of that's in line with what we already know or in line with perspectives or views that we have. And so this is one way that delusion works. And so I'd like to offer some, um, some information. And there's different kind of levels or different depths of delusion. And the most obvious form, I'm going to talk about them in, in three different levels. The most obvious form is, is basically when we're not mindful. You know, it's just disconnected from experience. That's the most obvious kind of delusion. And, and we see that when we wake up from being lost in thought. The second kind of delusion is, is more related to our own personal views, opinions, ideas, beliefs, agendas, the conditioning that we've had from our childhood, our family culture, our, our wider culture. The views, views come in through our conditioning and shape how we see things. And this is a second layer of, condition, of, of delusion. Not that we have views, but that we are unaware that we have views. We take our perspective, and we don't even know it's a perspective. We just take it to be reality. This is the second level of delusion. And I'm going to talk about each of these in a little bit more depth. And the third level is, the second level is kind of, might call it personal delusion because it's based on our own personal conditioning, our culture that we've been connected with, the family, our school, uh, our own personal experience. This third level of delusion is what I will call human delusion. It's delusion that we all share, the most kind of insidious, deep patterns in our minds. We seem to come into into the world with these perspectives. And yet they are perspectives. And we can see them as perspectives. And so this first kind, this, this not connecting, this is basically we're lost in thought. We're not aware of what's happening in the present moment. Just disconnected from experience. The moment, the moment we can begin to see this, I think I spoke about this sometime, <laughs> uh, the moment when mindfulness returns, that mo- in that moment we can get a sense of that mindfulness is back and also in that moment because uh, our minds have been functioning, perceiving, knowing, those processes don't stop when we're not mindful as, we're, as we know. And so when mindfulness returns, there's a way that uh, we can 
have a sense, it's kind of a lingering smell or a lingering taste of what that state was like before mindfulness came. Maybe a sense of a fog or a a sink, a sunk underground or just not that feeling of just being separated from experience. And so when mindfulness returns, there's an opportunity to notice the difference between non-delusion and delusion in that, in that simple way, in this kind of most obvious way. So every time your mind returns from wandering, that's an opportunity to notice the non-delusion of waking up into mindfulness again. That's probably not complete non-delusion in that moment, but it's, a, it's, it's in the terrain of that distinction between aware of a mind unaffected by delusion and a mind affected by delusion. Other forms of this kind of, of uh, delusion can manifest as sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, sleepiness, a heaviness of mind, doubt, wavering mind. And yet we see, we begin to see that while these states of mind are probably kind of habitually deluded, habitually non-mindful, they're not inherently deluded, they're not inherently non-mindful. That it is possible to be aware of sleepiness. It's possible to be aware of spacing out. You might think that's kind of that, that maybe, you know, I certainly felt like that was kind of almost the definition of delusion, spacing out. And yet, began to be curious about the state itself. Noticing one, one day while I was having breakfast that the mind kept spacing out. While it was spaced out, I wasn't particularly mindful for most of the time, but then I'd wake up, notice that mindfulness was back. And I had an agenda at that point because I was eating breakfast. My mind said, well, what I'm supposed to do here is pay attention to the process of eating. And so I started, I turned my attention to, to, to noticing all the sensations of eating. And then the mind would space out again. Happened a bunch of times. And finally, I decided to kind of just check out. And this is a, this is a tool um, we talked about in some of the meetings I've had with you, just as kind of widening the attention. It's like, well, what's going on here? Maybe the mindfulness can, can follow or, 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 or know what's happening as the mind is spacing out. Instead of, instead of trying to hold on to paying attention to something in particular, I explored the possibility of, okay, well, the mind is kind of letting go and it kind of felt like, actually, what it felt like it was that the, the kind of the mind kind of hovered up above my head and to the right a little bit, just hovering up here. And yet I discovered that it was possible to be aware of that state, that experience of the mind hovering. And in that place I recognized that the mind was resting that it actually needed rest. And this movement to come back to attending to the eating process was making the mind tired. Was, the, the, mind would, the mind needed some rest. And it was, it was going to take its rest whether I gave it permission or not. And so I began to, just, I began to be curious about that and discovered that it is possible kind of in a way to follow the mind into that state. Allow the attention, the mindfulness to to broaden and take in, oh, this is what it's like for the mind to kind of, well, in this case, what it became was not spacing out and disconnection from experience, but it became resting. Resting and aware. And so this, again, this exploration around things that we might think are habitually disconnected, 
that I, I really want to emphasize that it's that this I hope what I'm hoping that you hear is not that when there's a, a sense of disconnection from experience that you should try to connect to something. Oh, there's disconnection. Let me pick up hearing or let me pick up body sensation. What about exploring what's this? What's this feeling of disconnection? What's this feeling of sleepiness or low energy or, or boredom? What's this? And in that we see that we are, can be connected to states that we habitually think of as non-mindful. And so this is a little bit of exploring that, that edge of being aware. In a sense, what this does is it converts delusion to non-delusion. This curiosity of what's this? And again, again, seeing how in that example of the, of the spacing out, there was the recognition of a certain kind of quality of, it was almost like a quality of looping in itself, the mind kind of looping in itself that was the delusion. And that, that that kind of the the resting while the mind uh, just hung out that didn't have that same kind of looping quality. So the second form of delusion, um, looking at delusion based on views, agendas, concepts. This is a little bit more, um, a little bit more insidious because it, it means, it can mean that we um, are aware. It's not that we're not aware, but that we are what we are unaware of is a filter or a view. We are unaware of the view that's happening. And so this, again, we we take in views from our family, from our experience. We can have um, perspectives based on our culture, based on our own personal experience, based on an agenda. Even something as simple as an agenda can create a a filter that we take in information that is related to our agenda, but do not take in information, do not see information unrelated to that agenda. There's so many different ways this kind of delusion Works, and I'm just going to go through a, a couple different ones to give you some flavors of this. This one about the agenda is uh, it's kind of fun to explore and think about. Many of you may have heard about the the study that was done with the um, uh, it's it's a it's a study on selective attention, and when you give somebody an agenda, basically it's a study around this, the, the way that our minds, when they have an agenda or a task to do, they will miss things that are pretty obvious in experience. And so this is uh, the famous um, gorilla basketball study, which is just briefly, um, um, you, people were shown a video, asked to count the number of times that uh, the basketball passed between the players in the white shirts. There were people with dark shirts and light shirts and, and asked to count the number of times the basketball passed between the players in the white shirt. And most people could do that, count accurately the number of times. And then um, after that, they asked, well, did you see the gorilla? And uh, about a little less than half the people saw the gorilla or saw something like that, but half the people did not see the gorilla. Now that itself 
is not inherently delusion. That's a kind of natural functioning of our mind. It, uh, it narrows the attention to take in something that we are oriented towards. So we had a task. We have a task to look at this. And yet, some number of people who even told afterwards that this had happened, they said, well, I would have seen that gorilla had it been in the video. Now that is delusion. (laughs) That belief that what we are taking in is an accurate representation of reality. It is not an accurate representation of reality. It is a representation of our views and opinions and agendas and what's important to us in this moment. There's a lot of information that our minds don't take in. And this is not inherently a bad thing or a problem because, you know, essentially there is so much information coming in that it would kind of overwhelm us if our minds didn't filter certain things. And yet what is an issue is our belief that our eyes function like cameras and they are taking in accurately everything that's happening. Views are a huge source of this kind of delusion a huge source of these filters that operate in our experience and have us taking information in, some information in, not other information in. We have views about ourselves, we have views about other people. Essentially these views can kind of, you know, box us in. And we notice when somebody else is doing this to us. You know, oh, you're always like that. Well, no, no, I'm not always like that. I know what I'm not like that. But it's harder for us to see when we do it to other people or when we do it to ourselves. I was, um, I started reading Remembrance of Things Past a few years ago. I didn't finish it, but um, the first 150 pages had some amazing observations of humanity and the way the mind works. Proust says, Our social personality is a creation of the mind of others. Even the simple act of what we call seeing a person we know is in part an intellectual one. We fill the physical appearance of the individual we see with all the notions we have about them and of the total picture about others that we form for ourselves. Those notions certainly occupy the greater part. This is more true than we know. That when we see somebody, mostly what we are seeing are our views, our opinions, our ideas about them. We have concepts, we have ideas, views, opinions about, about our friends, about our family members, about somebody we do not know we have views and opinions about. You've seen this. Views and opinions about somebody who, about how somebody's reaching for a spoon. Or, or the way, how much food they put on their plate, or all kinds of things we have views and opinions about. It's rampant. And so we tend to, we form these views and opinions, we may not see that we have these views and opinions, and then we start then looking, potentially, for things that confirm those views and opinions. This is called confirmation bias in our modern psychology. Confirmation bias. We tend to look for information that confirms what we already believe. And we don't recognize, actively ignore, or discount information 
that does not confirm what we believe. Another one from Proust. Facts do not find their way into the world in which our beliefs reside. Facts did not produce our beliefs. They do not destroy them. They may inflict on them the most constant refutations without weakening them. We're seeing that these days. And so we can begin to see also how this form of belief, this form of delusion is not neutral. It creates so much suffering. The way we hold to our views, the way we believe our views to be true, our views about ourselves, our views about other people, our views about the world, our views about political systems, our views about It gets more complex in some ways, or layers, more layers get added on, because it's not just views about individuals. We also have views about groups of people. We tend to have, uh, when when we're relating to people who are similar to us in various ways, we tend to see them Uh, we tend to see them through our views of them as individuals. And so there's still those views operating. But when we see people who are a little different from us, perhaps a different race or gender or sexual orientation or, or different ability, we don't tend to see them just as an individual. We tend to see them with a whole bunch of baggage about what we see as a category or a group they belong to. So this is where racism, ageism, sexism, homophobia, all of these are in this terrain of carrying baggage along about people with respect to group identities or group group connections. This causes so much suffering in our world. Not seeing this baggage. Not knowing that we are carrying along views and seeing experience, seeing, relating to the world through views. Well, again, we're probably not going to get rid of views entirely. But what we can begin to do is to recognize that views are operating. Views are operating all the time. And this is something we can remind ourselves of. I was just talking to a a Dharma friend the other day and and, um, that friend said, I knew there was a gorilla in the room but I didn't know what the gorilla was. And so that, that, that there was some kind of, that, that, that they were experiencing a kind of state of, of recognizing that there was something that was confusing, but didn't quite, they couldn't identify, oh, it's the gorilla in the room. But, they, but, but, but that person could recognize or say, they, they could say, yep, there's, there's delusion here. I don't know what it is. I can't name it how the delusion is working, but I know, it's, I know there is delusion happening. Knowing there's some kind of you going on that's creating some kind of relationship to experience, but not quite even able to see what that belief or view is. But knowing that it's there. This is a, this is a beginning of a way of recognizing 
delusion is affecting the mind. A question we can ask ourselves at times, and any time there is suffering, any time there's suffering, any time there's an experience of something feeling just not quite right, there is some kind of delusion at work. There's some kind of view or belief at work. And so it can be useful to just ask yourself that question sometimes. What's being believed? It won't always pull that delusion or pull that view, pull that belief out of the subconscious mind, reveal it to us. But it, it can give ourselves the chance to recognize, okay, there is some kind of belief happening here, and even that is powerful. Views about ourselves, views about... At one point I encouraged um, somebody to, to notice uh, a very particular strong belief they had about their, own, their, self, their selves, a, a kind of a strong kind of conditioned belief. And the, the person recognized it was strongly believed. And um, in exploring this, exploring noticing it as belief, this person said, but I, I can't stop believing it. So that's another way of noticing how strong delusion can be sometimes, that we can see that there's a belief and that we, we still believe it. And yet it's, it's helpful in that kind of a situation not to try to convince yourself to stop believing it, especially when it's strong in that way. What's useful there is to recognize Wow, yeah, there's that belief and boy, strong believing is happening. That's what's happening right now. Even that basically opens the mind because when, it, when a belief like that, a strong belief like that is operating below the level of our conscious awareness. For myself, I had a strong belief in my unworthiness. Self-hatred was kind of the, the emotional tone there. Strong belief in my unworthiness. And, you know, recognizing it as a belief, sometimes, sometimes I could recognize it, oh, that's that belief. And it's, you know, it's like, there's like gradations of how much belief there is. We can kind of recognize, oh, this is strongly believed or not so strongly believed. We can recognize how strong the belief is around some view that we're holding. And if it's very strong, it's useful just to even recognize, okay, strong belief is happening. You don't have to convince yourself to not believe it, but recognize that it is a belief because that begins to crack. Just recognizing that it's a belief begins to crack the minds, taking it to be truth. It's at least recognizing that it's belief. And that's what's going on in that moment. And so you are aligning yourself in that moment with what's actually happening. Strong belief, that's what's happening right now. And potentially recognizing, and this is the mind affected by delusion, affected by this belief. This is the mind affected by belief. The third kind, the the most insidious kind of delusion is this human delusion, this delusions that we tend to share as human beings. And it's it's uh, basically it's forms of views. They are views, but they're such deeply held views that you go to any culture in the world and these views are, are operating. So they're, they're kind of independent of culture. They seem to come into, uh, into um, being with our birth as human beings, these, these views, basic distortions of how we meet experience. 
And these will be familiar to you as I name them. Because what we tend to do as human beings is we tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable to produce a lasting kind of happiness to be reliable, to produce, to produce a lasting happiness. And we tend to take what is not self to be self. And so these three kind of root misperceptions are also an understanding of what is seen through when the mind becomes free. Essentially, these are, this is the deepest d- delusion in our minds, that we tend to take what's permanent, impermanent to be permanent, unreliable to be reliable, what's not self to be self. And in this kind of situation, again, it may be that we, it's not that we're not aware, but we are seeing experience through this very deeply conditioned perspective. Saira Utejaniya said, delusion, this kind of delusion, doesn't mask the object. It masks the nature, the true nature of the object. And so we see, we see our, our friends, and we see ourselves, and we in some interesting way that I spoke of this morning, we tend to take ourselves to be immortal. Now we may know that we're going to die, but but not today. Or we we may understand at some level that we're going to die, but we don't wake up in the morning and recognize this day This day may be my last day on the planet. And so, in terms of exploring this, exploring these three areas, there's a lot that can be said about these. I recently gave a series of, I think, eight Dharma talks on delusion. So this is the top layer. <laughs> but just, I just want to offer a few reflections on how we can begin to see this. And so the Buddha encouraged us in this terrain to cultivate the perception of impermanence, to cultivate the perception of unreliability, and to cultivate the perception of not-self. And in my understanding, to me this means to, to, to kind of look at, recognize, kind of orient towards noticing that things are impermanent, that there is unreliability, that things are often uncontrollable, not me or mine or I to control. And so, with respect to taking what's impermanent to be permanent, at times you might notice that something in your experience feels solid. This exploration. For at one point in my practice, I was just noticing where the mind was creating solidity and got curious about that. It's like this solid experience of, of a block of pain, for instance. What's that like? And then exploring it, being curious about it, begin to see that it's not solid, but kind of a rapidly changing, dynamic experience. And so looking at what we are taking to be solid and 
noticing its changing nature. And this, this, may, this may happen over a kind of a, a longer stretch of time. For instance, one day um, I was a veggie chopper in the kitchen here. And uh, you walk in, there's all kinds of vegetables. And uh, often they're in buckets. And uh, the, the cook will put a new bucket out. Well, one day the cook, I don't know, the cook I, it seemed like had a kind of sense of humor. Because what we had on the table was all of the chard in a huge mound. It was, it, to me, it was like four feet high. It was this huge mound of chard. I felt like I couldn't see the person on the other side of the chopping table. It's like my mind created solidity around that mound of chard. And it said something like, we are never going to finish that in the hour. And yet, I just started working. I noticed, I noticed that kind of sense of, it's a thing. And then I started chopping and chopping and chopping and chopping. And about, I don't know, half an hour later, I looked up and the, the mound was gone. It's like, it startled me. It disappeared. So that's the kind of exploration we can make, is notice that things change. We can just let that be a highlight for us. Notice change. And noticing what we are taking, what we are looking for to be reliable. You know, sometimes it's something simple or small, like getting my seat in the dining hall or, or having two pieces of chocolate or, or something. And uh, you know what is it that what is it that our mind is is grasping out for and and looking at oh that's going to make me happy, and then the Buddha offered a very simple instruction around this. He said, "Yeah, it's a form of happiness when you get what you want. Notice how long it lasts." So this is a way. In a way, it's connected to impermanence. This teaching on unreliability. The understanding of unreliability is directly connected to the impermanent nature of experience. Because our mind imputes a more lasting kind of reliability to something that is fleeting. And so that's that the Buddha encouraged us. Notice, okay, you have a, a, a bit of happiness from having some chocolate. How long does it last? What happens? Chocolate's actually pretty interesting. I was surprised. I investigated this. <laughs> I put the chocolate in my mouth, and it was, it was, yeah, it was pretty happy, pretty good. Lots of sense pleasure happening with the, with the chocolate. And then the chocolate was gone. But I just kept investigating, and there was a lingering happiness. It probably lasted about a minute. <laughs> That's a lot longer than I thought it would last, but uh, yeah, it, it did fade. And so noticing, noticing how long does it last? The mind sometimes, especially I find also deeper into retreat, we may find the mind desperately searching for something reliable in experience. Like, the more we see just how fleeting experience is, how rapidly things are falling apart, some part of our minds, this is, and this is, you know, some of the deeper undoing or the deeper um, noticing of how strongly our mind rebels against this truth of impermanent, unreliable. That as we see the just... Experience arises and vanishes. Experience arises and vanishes. And just some, at certain points, sometimes that can be delightful, but sometimes it's like, oh, there's nowhere to land. Where do I land here? And, and the mind desperately starts searching for somewhere, somewhere to land. And this is a manifestation of that delusion that there's got to be someplace to land for 
happiness. There must be. Our minds believe at some very deep level there must be some place to land for happiness where I can rest, some place to land and rest. And so this searching, sometimes you, you, you might notice the mind kind of looking for something to land on, some place to, can't I find something? That's a form of delusion at work. That belief that there would be some place to land. And again, you don't have to stop that from happening, but recognize it, searching, searching for somewhere to land. And this is delusion at work. Delusion affecting the mind, believing, believing there's some place to find happiness. At one point on a, a long retreat, the forest refuge. I noticed this process happen a lot. There would be a kind of a, a, a space of the mind searching for some place to have some place to settle. And, and sometimes it, the mind would actually create a state of ease or peace and land there for a little while. Whoop! It was like, oh, whew, I can rest here for a little while. Then that would fall apart and, and there would be a kind of an even deeper peace that happened as the mind could be okay with even the falling apart of peace. But then the mind picked up the search again. Oh, but there must be some place, some place to land. And, and by this time, I, I watched this happen over and over again, and I just felt very tender towards this pattern. It's like, oh, Search away. <laughs> You're not going to find anything. But I'll be with you while you look. Okay. <laughs> it's like some part of our system just has to do that. We cannot tell ourselves to not be deluded. But we can begin to recognize this. Searching, okay, searching is happening. (coughs) And then seeing what's not self, as self. And this is a this is a big talk, and we might we might do a talk about this at some point, a whole talk about not self and noticing the sense of self. But this is this is actually the key piece I just want to point to here along with all of these other things that that we've been pointing to, whatever experience is arising, notice it. There's a famous quote by Zen master Dogen. He said, to study the way is to study the self. I would say to study the way, to study, to study our minds and hearts is to study this sense of self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by the 10,000 things. And so our practice isn't somehow trying to find our way to not self, but is to study to get to know all the ways that we take up self. So notice, when does it feel like I'm a me? When does it feel like? And and there's some some really obvious times like around this. I wouldn't wouldn't so much encourage trying to find, the, the sense of self is probably operating a lot and very continuously like below the level of our conscious awareness. And yet, it, it's, it, I'm pointing more to those times when it just kind of stares us in the face. A sense of self-righteousness. I'm right. Oh, there's a good one. Oh, there's Andrea. Okay. So, so noticing that, what does that feel like? At one point, I was noticing a sense of I'm right. I'm, I'm, I know my... I'm, I'm smart, I know my stuff, and, 
and uh, that person is wrong and they shouldn't be doing that and so a lot of a lot of selfing there and 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 something else happened in the in the situation this was I was doing walking meditation and noticing very much this congealing of a sense of me this analytical argumentative I'm right Andrea was really present and then a big truck drove up and my mind just, I mean, it, it, was, it was amazing, this truck. And the whole 40-year-old, I was 40 at the time, 40-year-old Andrea just like vanished and it was replaced by something that felt more like a two-year-old. Wow, it's a truck. <laughs> Bang, crash, boom, squeal of the brakes. It was this sense delight of a two-year-old. Immediately this shift or seeing how a sense of self turns on a dime. And what I took to be me is now gone. Something else is there. So noticing that, noticing how those interplay, how they, how they come into being. Studying the sense of self. And then at times you may notice a weakening of that. At times you might notice a, a, just taking in experience. Not me, not mine, not who I am. And in terms of cultivating the perception of not-self, which the Buddha encouraged us also to do at times, I think that this, this this is the avenue that he pointed to, is using this reflection, this sense of self that's happening, is a conditioned phenomenon. It isn't me. It's not me. It's not who I am. He used that phrase a lot. One understands one experience. This is not me. This is not who I am. This is not myself. Using that as a kind of reflection to begin to let wisdom infiltrate our habit of the sense of self. And so delusion, seeing delusion, at times we see through something. Insight, we, our minds open into clearly recognizing the unreliable nature of experience. At one point I was, I was seeing everything was just an arising and it, it, I understood it, it's, this is unreliable, this is unreliable. And the mind was so happy in knowing that. It was not experiencing suffering, it was knowing the unreliability and not picking up experience, knowing that unreliability. It was not clinging to experience. I thought I'd figured it out. Conditions change. The next day, what I was experiencing was picking it up. And that's what I got to be with. It's not a mistake and it's not a problem. When sometimes we see through, it's like the veils part and we see through some delusion. Oh, things are unreliable. There's no point in picking anything up. And then habit of mind returns. Conditions change. The mind picks things up, holds on to them, and oh, this hurts, it suffers. It's not, it's not that we've somehow lost that understanding. In fact, what we can explore or experience, in fact, the next day when I was picking up the suffering, and picking up experience, clinging to experience, it was much clearer to me 
that this was the mind doing it, that this was a habit of mind. This was delusion at work, this picking up of unreliable experience and clinging to it. It was delusion at work. Having seen it, clearly not picking it up, when the pattern came back, that's a way that we can now really clearly begin to say to ourselves, recognize, ah, this is the mind affected by delusion. Before it fall, before the, the delusion falls away for, for moments, it might be for, for a minute or a few seconds or maybe a few hours, a delusion might fall away. Having seen that difference, the mind unaffected by delusion, as the mind unaffected by delusion, the mind affected by delusion becomes much clearer. And so this is the opportunity not to beat yourself up for, I'm not seeing it the way I saw it yesterday, but oh, here's the opportunity to see this is how delusion works. This is delusion at work. And so again, the path is mindfulness of what's arising. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.